message, we'll be looking at the Church of Laodicea as we continue through our series looking at churches in the New Testament. Uh, The original uh, lesson that I have combines um, the Church of Colossae with the Church of Laodicea and looking at both of those, as most of you know, I I, I, uh, taught this series when I was in Colorado and I put both of those churches together, but uh, for the sake of time tonight, um, we will just look at the Church of Laodicea. Let's go to Colossians uh, chapter 4 and look at that passage uh, real briefly and see how it is that these two churches relate. And when I, when we do look, uh, perhaps the next lesson, when we do look at the church of Colossae, um, uh, we will look more at um, these two cities, their culture, and so forth. But um, here as we begin tonight, let's just read uh, Colossians chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 10. Uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, which is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath as great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. There's a few things that we will wait to go over until we study the Church of Colossae. Um, But if you note just briefly, maybe to get you thinking along these lines, uh, isn't it interesting that um, he says in verse 16, writing to this church, he says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. We'll talk about it in the next lesson, but why isn't there an epistle to Laodicea in the Word of God? And uh, But we have the epistle to the Colossians. As we know, the apostles wrote, um, the early church leaders, they wrote letters to various churches and they shared them, but we don't have the letter to the church of Laodicea, I should say, that Paul wrote. But we do have a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church of Laodicea, and that's really what I want to focus on uh, tonight. We'll save the rest of that for, uh, um, for our next lesson. But I do want to mention that um, the reason that they were sharing letters back and forth and they had relations with one another and um, the leaders of the two churches um, were working with um, Aristarchus, Epaphras, and, and others they were working um, together with the church in Laodicea and going back and forth. That was able to happen because those two churches were only 12 miles apart, or the two cities were only 12 miles apart. But what's interesting, and it'll relate to the lesson tonight, 
is the church of Colossae was more like the church of Philippi. It was poor. The city, not just the church, the city itself was a working man city. It was a poor city. Laodicea was one of the richest cities in the entire region. And so even though it was only 12 miles away, you know, Colossae was like Spokane and uh, Laodicea was like Coeur d'Alene. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, you know, a lot of times you will have um, cities uh, relatively close to one another, but man, the demographics are completely different. The other side of the railroad tracks, if you will. And that's the way these two churches were. They were on opposite sides of the tracks. It carried over into how their church was. When Paul wrote to the church, uh, to the Colossians, he didn't really have any bad things to say to them. He gave them words of warning, but he didn't have anything that, to reprimand them about, so to speak. Um, Laodicea, that's a little different story. But let's begin in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Now before I read this, I want to state that the church of Laodicea is perhaps one of the most blessed churches of all time. And you may be wondering, well, I know enough of the Laodicea, Laodicea to know that that was the lukewarm church. That was the church that God wanted to spew out of his mouth. Why would you say that? Well, let's just read this and then we'll get back to that. Revelation chapter 4, or 1 and verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the princes of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And so this letter written to the seven churches, think about the, the introduction here. It says, grace be unto you, and peace from him which was and is. Imagine if we got a church, or we got a letter, and it was written in the introduction from God to this church in Post Falls was grace be unto you and peace from him which is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Mm. Well, we'd be a pretty blessed church if we got a letter from mm. God that direct, wouldn't we? You see what I'm saying? Laodicea was a blessed church. Go down to... Uh, 10 verse 10 now it doesn't say it doesn't mention Laodicea there so let's go to verse 10 it says I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia unto Ephesus unto Smyrna unto Pergamos unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea you notice that Colossae is not mentioned there? It's only 12 miles away. They got an epistle from Paul, but Laodicea got a letter from God himself. They got the book of Revelation. Think about that. There was only seven churches that got this book initially, the book of the Revelation, and they're one of them. And so uh, keep that in mind. What a joy to be one of the seven churches to re receive this incredible book before anybody else did. What also an incredible opportunity to hear from Christ himself 
as to what we need to do to get right with Him. We'll read what He says to the Laodiceans. He tells the Laodiceans, He says, As many as I love, I chasten. He's telling the church of Laodicea, I love you. And here's a fact. As many as I love, I'm going to chasten. Oh, repent therefore. Here's an opportunity for you. Opportunity isn't over. Repent. And what an awesome opportunity that the church of Laodicea was given. Um, This letter is addressed to the pastor. Let's go ahead and uh, go over to Revelation chapter 3 now, our main passage. And let's just read um, this brief uh, statement that was written to that church. In Revelation 3 and verse 14, we'll read through 22. It says, unto the angel, so this is unto the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things, and I've mentioned this before in speaking of the churches of Laodicea, but can you imagine being the pastor of the church? You get it. It's, it's, this is written to the church, but it's written unto the angel of the church. It really shows the responsibility that a pastor has before God for his flock. It, the responsibility, more people need to have an appreciation for the pastor and respect for the pastor because he has a great responsibility to tell the flock yes. what the Lord wants him right. to say. And when he studies the word of God and he looks for direction from God as to what it is I should preach the, this Lord's day to his flock, he is directed by the Holy Ghost as to what he should say. He has an awesome responsibility And if things are done properly, God speaks to the pastor first, and then he speaks to the church. And we need to listen to what the pastor has to say in that regard. And it says, so the letter's addressed to the angel. It says, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And as, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If This is one of those misused passages that a lot of times is people try to lead people to the Lord with this passage. But let's keep in mind here, who's he writing to? Well, first off, he's writing to the pastor. And then the pastor's going to relay this message to the church. Okay. And so he's telling a bunch of saved people that are already members of a church. And so he's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? I'm standing at the door of the church and I'm knocking. I'm ready to speak you out of my mouth. This is a, these are words of warning. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me to him that overcometh will i grant to sit with me in in my throne even as i also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne he that hath an ear to hear 
he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In those, in those last verses there, we see, um, if any man hear my voice and open the door, and I come into him, and will sup with him, and he with me. There, as I mentioned, he's writing to the pastor first, and he's writing to the church. But in order for a church to repent, a church is made up of individuals. And so a church repents when God deals with your heart and your heart and my heart right. and your heart. And the church ends up repenting as a whole when God gets a hold of the hearts of the people in the church. But yet God still is addressing the church. He's addressing the pastor. He's addressing the church. But at the end of the day, there is an individual responsibility for each person right. in the church. And so... Um, what an awesome opportunity this church does have. Um, as secular history indicate, indicates, they were a wealthy and materialistic city. The members of the church would have been wealthy. They would have been materialistic. They thought that they were good to go. God was really blessing. Um, I almost wonder if they almost had this uh, prosperity gospel mentality to a certain degree that one of the evidences that we are so blessed is because God favors us right um, and but they were misled they they thought they were rich they thought they were blessed but they were not blessed the Lord says you are poor you're destitute um, did has riches or did riches ever contribute to the quality of a church. The quality of a church. A church that is planted in a um, prosperous, affluent neighborhood versus a church that is started in a ghetto. There's not going to be, it's not going to, it doesn't affect the spirituality or the quality of the church one iota whether people have an eighth grade graduation and work in a factory or they have a college degree and master's degrees and they're super smart and intellectual and they make a lot of money with their education at the end of the day that has nothing to do with the quality of a church and so um they were not seeing that they were spiritually destitute but their life their quality of life was good. I'm sure that they dressed good, and when they showed up to church, they looked proper, and um, they, you know, didn't have problems with uh, a lot of the issues that come along in lifestyles due to poverty. But they were they were poor. He says, "I know thy works." Perhaps even he knows their lack of works. <laughs> I know thy works. He said the same thing to the church of Ephesus. I know thy works. You know. Even he addresses each church, I know thy works. Um, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? That the Lord knows our works. And he also knows our lack thereof. He knows what we're not doing for the Lord. And I think that that's really what's at play here. Is He knows, it's not that they were performing works of iniquity. Out, you know, just living vile, immoral lives out in the community. And he says, I know thy works. No, 
they're lukewarm. They're apathetic. They're not doing anything. That's the problem. And he's saying, I know that works. You're not doing anything. You're just coasting along through this Christian life. And so, um, it's a sobering thought concerning our, what are our works? What are your works? What are we doing for the Lord? Are we stuck in that robot mode? Um, everything's going okay. The Lord seems to be blessing. And, uh, um, but what are, what are we actually doing for the Lord? Something for all of us to consider on a personal basis. And then as a unit, it's good for our church to consider once in a while we stop. Maybe we have a meeting, you know, and we talk about what are, what are we doing? What are we actually doing? And what more can we be doing? Is there anything more that we can be doing? Sometimes a church is doing about all that it can do, you know, until more laborers come along because it takes laborers. But, um... It's something to consider. Jesus told the church of Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. There's various different kinds of works that a church has, um, and that we have. There's works such as a love for the brethren. There's um, works such as soul winning. There's all these different kinds of works, but we need to, in light of our lesson today, we need to be active in what it is that we're doing for the Lord. Uh, man by nature seems to forget God when life is good. It's just a pathetic, horrible human attribute that um, the saints of God who God does bless, you know. Um, when things are going good for us, when our health is good, even if we're not rich financially, but when our health is good, um, our family's blessed, family life is good, um, we just tend to take it for granted. Um, man, man is also good at misinterpreting what God's blessing is. This church said we're rich, but they were poor. We say we're blessed. The Lord just says, I've never been so blessed. And sometimes when people say that, they are so outside the will of God. And we know that they're outside the will of God, not just because it's our opinion, but based on what the word of God says. There are professing Christians who are outside the church. There are professing Christians who listen to, they get all their preaching from the radio, or that's old school. Now it's, they get all their preaching from YouTube and Facebook and, and all these things, and they see all these little cute little uh, quick clips on TikTok and Instagram and everything else, and uh, that's how they, they get fed, and, and they even interact and put stuff out there themselves, and they're helping to feed the body of Christ and all this gobbledygook. And the reality is, is if you're outside of the local church, <laughs> you're not in God's will. Right. And yet people right. so many times are like, I'm just so blessed. The Lord is blessing. And, uh, oh, but they're blessed based on what? Are they saying that they're blessed based on their home life, their riches, their entertainment, their lack of persecution? We've never, we've never been so blessed. They're... I'm not going to share examples, but I've heard example after 
There have been instance after instance where people have left the church, where they've ended up in a situation, you talk to them a couple, three years later, and they're like, yeah, the Lord's just really been blessing, you know, and this and that, and they're not even in church. The Lord's not blessing. That's not the Lord, right? Um, And uh, um, it's a similar situation to how this church was. When we consider this church of Laodicea, when we consider our church, we always have to remember that it's his church. And when, it, when we consider that it's his church and Christ is the head of the church, that means that we do not get to do things how we want to do it. He's paying attention. He wrote these letters to the churches. He knows our works. And Jesus, as the head of the church, is paying attention to what Calvary Independent Baptist Church in Post Falls is doing. We don't need to worry about what the other Baptist churches in town are doing as much as really coming to terms with the fact that the Lord is paying attention to what we're doing and it's His church. It's not our church. And so we don't get to pick and choose what in the Word of God we're going to ignore, how we are going to do things or not do things. He's paying attention. It's a sobering thing to know that the Lord is paying attention. Sometimes I almost feel like we give the devil more credit than we do Jesus. Because we're quick to notice when things get rough. And we're quick to notice that uh, we know the passage, you know, that um, Satan is walking about the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Oh, we know that one. And uh, we almost sometimes think of Satan as his omnipresent power. And we give Satan more credit sometimes than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is completely aware and watching what we're doing as individuals. And he's watching what we're doing as a church. Um, And so he has full authority and ability to remove the candlestick of a church, just like he said he would do if they didn't repent in Ephesus. right? Just remove the candlestick. Um, He said here to this church, he said, I word that you were either hot or cold, but because you're neither one, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He has the right to spew us out of his mouth. Now that doesn't mean that if you're in a church that he spews out of your mouth that you lose your salvation, Right? But what it does mean is that oh, this church doesn't have to continue. Like the Lord's church is going to continue. He promised it perpetuity. But there's no guarantee that this church is going to be here in five years. Right. It's his church. Yes. And if this church or any church um, at any time, if it doesn't repent and it begins doing things wrong and it's just a church that the Lord is, is done with that mess... <laughs> He can do whatever he wants to with it in his time. Now, sometimes when he removes a candlestick or he spews them out of his mouth, it doesn't mean that the building goes away. It doesn't even mean that the dead Christians in it go away. There have been a lot of churches that have fallen into apostasy and they're no longer the Lord's church. They've gone so far and they could continue for another 100, 200, 300 years as an entity, but the gospel's not being preached there anymore. It's as dead as could be. It's a shell of what it once was. And so, um, it's his church, though. He can do what he will with these churches. But he does warn us. 
he gives us all the instruction that we need. He gives us examples of the church like Laodicea as to how it is that we should be. And, and we know, thanks to the churches like Corinth and Laodicea and Ephesus and, and different ones for different reasons, um, we know what the Lord's looking for in a church. We know what he doesn't like. And I think we have all of what we need to know about what he doesn't like. If there was more that we needed to know about what he doesn't like in a church, he would have told us. I think he's told us there's enough there for us to process. He doesn't like this. And what we're looking at tonight is he despises lukewarmness. And, uh, oh, and so he says what it is, and I don't have time to get into it all tonight, but he gives instruction as to what it is that you should do. Um, he says, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. I'll just say that what man is to be, what he's more interested in is righteousness. When he's this, this white raiment, putting on white raiment, that the shame of thy nakedness might not appear, you know, these types of things. He's more interested in us being holy. We're to be holy as he's holy. And we're to seek after those things that appear from the word of God. And, and we, we are to desire to be more like him. And he says here, he says you're lukewarm, but notice, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And then he concludes it with, be zealous. That's the opposite of lukewarm. Be zealous and repent. I want to I wanna look at, um, as we close tonight, I want to look at some uh, key words that we should be able to keep in mind. Turn to Jude chapter 3. I'm just going to go down through. I have basically one verse per key word. There's many other verses. But as I was thinking about this, how can we avoid being lukewarm and pathetic? Um, apathy is just a reoccurring disease among many churches throughout all of church history, beginning here and just continuing on. And uh, not all churches are apathetic, but it's, it's a problem in many churches. And it can only be cured by God sending revival and repentance, which causes wholesale church repentance. Um, some, here's some scriptural keywords. To embrace, which I believe will help prevent us from becoming an apathetic church. The word that I want to first consider in Jude 3 is contend. The word contend is not a lethargic, apathetic, don't care word. We're told to contend. And so he says, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. This contend here is dispute earnestly. Dispute earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. This is something that many churches are, well, we call it compromise. You know, um, just this, I was teaching a Bible uh, lesson last night, and I was mentioning in incognito Christians. 
You know, incognito is unnamed, unidentified, anonymous. What segment of Christianity most is incognito Christians? I've thought about bringing an entire message on this because <laughs> it, it burns me up. It's the very concept of non-denominational. Mm. It's incognito. We don't want to put out there what we are, what we stand for, what we believe. You're anonymous. You're, you're just incognito. And you don't want to say anything or identify as anything that might offend somebody. And that is completely the opposite right. of earnestly yes. contending yes. for the faith. Right? And so dispute <laughs> earnestly. Nobody wants to dispute and I'm not talking about um, being contentious. I'm not talking about being contentious. Don't get that confused. But there's a difference between defending and uh, maybe we would call it apologetics. But being able to defend what it is that we believe and say this right. is what we believe and this is why we believe it. And it's because of this is what the Word of God says. I'm getting more and more sick of being around the forms of Christianity to say, oh, we, you know, we, we, everything we believe is based on the Word of God. And then when you point out from the Word of God what it is that they're supposed to do and how we should do things, and then and it's like, well, but that would offend people. Then you don't do what you do based on the Word of God. Yeah. It's that simple. Yes. And then another key word is strive. Strive. Romans 15.30, if you'll turn over there. This is all completely opposed to being lukewarm. To strive. But what I... You know, lately we've been focusing more on prayer. I've been uh, driven more to consider prayer. And this passage actually speaks of striving in prayer. Um, now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God. And then he says, for me. I want you to strive together in prayer with me, for me. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's okay to ask for prayer, you know. It's not completely selfish to ask for prayer, especially in ministry. If, if it concerns serving the Lord and, yes. and things like that. Um, and isn't that interesting that he uses a word like strive? That is, exert oneself vigorously and try hard. He says, I want you to exert yourself vigorously together with me in your prayers to God for me. <laughs> um, but, he says, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe. In Judea. Um, and then another one. Uh, fight the good fight. This phrase, fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 6. Turn over there. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. He's writing to Timothy, of course. Oh. He says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And then he says, fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. He tells him, fight the good fight of faith. This would be similar to contend for the faith. But he, the way he says it here, though, is fight the good fight of faith. <coughs> Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And then in 2 Timothy, I'll just read this, in 2 Timothy 4.7, so he tells a young preacher that, but in 2 Timothy 4.7, he then confesses to Timothy. He says, I have fought a good fight. Um, he says, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Mm. So he tells the young preacher, fight the good fight. And, you know, we can go through this life and at the end say, I fought a good fight. I did. I fought. And uh, um, the Lord was with me. And if any victories were won, it was the Lord that won them. But it requires effort on our part. And when you're fighting the good fight, just by nature, that means it's not the easy path. Right. The easy path is retreat. The easy path is submission. The easy path is compromise. Just compromise. And when do people, in church contexts, when do people compromise? When they have to deal with people and stand up to people. And, and we don't want to, too many times, we don't want to have to stand up to people for what the word of God has to say and say, thus saith the Lord, and this is how we should do it. Because we don't want to offend people. Think about so many times the fight that is being waged is not against a heathen man. When you're contending for the faith and you're fighting the fight of faith, a lot of times Paul's adversaries, a lot of times he says, they were my own brethren, the Jews, and even those who were of the faith. He had people who were coming in and, Wolves in sheep's clothing or professing Christians at a minimum. And so it's not just fighting the good fight, fighting the devil, fighting all those who despise the cross. And No, fighting the good fight a lot of times takes place in a church context. And standing for what's right and, or standing up to other preachers, other false teachers. And, and it's, it's dealing with people. And so... Um, and then be zealous. Uh, Revelation 3.19, the passage that we looked at. To be zealous is to properly heat up, have a warmth towards, and then I have in my notes here in quotes, be on fire for God in terms that we would understand. It's, it's to heat up. It's to have a warmth towards. And so to be zealous for God is to have a warmth towards God. To have a warmth towards the Word of God. To have a warmth towards those things. Um, but most important is to have that warmth and that toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, when we're zealous in that regard, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore. He wants us to be on fire for him. He says, Be zealous and repent. And then fervent, which relates to zealous, um, fervent in James 15 or 5, I'll just read this, James 5, 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, notice the context again is in prayer, the effectual fervent prayer 
of a righteous man availeth much. And then in 1 Peter 4, um, it says, Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Speaking of Apollos, these are three different examples of fervency. Of Apollos in Acts 18, it says, This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently concerning the things of the Lord. These are all things that are completely the opposite of what it is to be lukewarm. And then here's another, two more active terms. Put on the armor. We're fighting the faith, the fight of faith, um, and we're contending for the faith and so forth in putting on the armor. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. If you're apathetic and you're, you're not on fire for God and you're wrestling, he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you, so it says, first off, put on the armor of God, and then it says again, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to, to stand. Sometimes standing is not, if you're standing in this way, in, in a defensive mode or, um, you know, fighting uh, these spiritual battles and taking to take a stand on something, that's not an apathetic stance either. An apathetic stance is kind of just, you know, moving back and, and shuffling around and maybe sidestepping once in a while. But no, this is, he says, Put, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. And then I'll finish with a final statement. There's a term, stand fast in the faith. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 14. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. These things, as I started off, I said, you know, as we began looking at these words, contend is not being contentious. Um, when we're talking about standing fast in the faith, it says, quit you like men. Um, this fight is not for sissies. Um, it's, this is a manly concept to be strong in battle. Um, there's a, the only time this phrase is mentioned like this, quit you like men, is when the Philistines were getting ready to fight Israel one time and they were... They were scared, and they needed a word of encouragement, and the Philistines went around yelling at each other, telling each other, you know, quit you like men, <laughs> and basically man up and get ready to go into battle. Now, this is the Philistines going, that's, the Word of God says that's what they were telling each other, getting ready to go fight Israel. Um, and Paul uses this same concept. It's a battle term, and it's, it's a stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. But then he he concludes with this thought. So here's a, a warlike, uh, a battle statement. Let all things be done with charity. In this battle that we're in, you know, he has that other passage that we're very familiar with. 
though I have all words of prophecy and though I have the gift of tongues and though I have all this, but I don't have charity. It's just, it's just a bunch of noise. It means nothing. It's never going to reach the heart of people. It just bounce off of them. And uh, it doesn't have an impact. And in this, he concludes, as he's, as he's closing out 1 Corinthians, he says, let all things be done in charity. We have to somehow be able to take a stand, fight for the faith, do what we do for the Lord, and at the same time caring about souls, caring about the people, even the people with whom we're standing against. Because ultimately you never know your greatest enemy. He could be just a horrible heretic. But if the Lord gets a hold of him and saves him, he could end up being an Apostle Paul for all you know. And so we have to do whatever it is that we do with charity, regardless of who it is that we're fighting against.